You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, top-notch copy editor. Hi, Cindy. <laughs> well, thanks. Hi, Jeremy. Today is December 17th, 2023, and this is episode 256 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear part two of a two-part interview with Sally Snowman and Jay Thompson. First, I thought we'd go back to something we did in early episodes of the podcast. What has happened on this date in history, Cindy? Well, Jeremy, a few major things have happened on this date. On December 17th in 497 BC, the Romans held the first Saturnalia festival. Yeah, I think that was a just a, a fancy name for a really big party. <laughs> <laughs> on December 17th, 1538, Pope Paul III excommunicated Henry VIII of England. On December 17th, 1835, a fire destroyed 13 acres in New York City's financial district. On December 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers made the first controlled, powered, heavier-than-air flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. On December 17th, 1983, The Simpsons premiered on television with the episode Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. And I have one that actually relates to lighthouses. On December 17, 1825, the first lighthouse at Cape Florida was established. The 1846 tower that stands today is in Bill Baggs Cape Florida State Park in Key Biscayne, Florida. The lighthouse is open to the public, and there's a museum in the Keeper's House. Now, let's go to today's interview. We did a longer introduction last week, but let's just recap some things about our guests. Sure, Jeremy. Sally Snowman is about to retire after 20 years as Keeper of Boston Light in Massachusetts, America's oldest light station. As a civilian employee of the Coast Guard, she oversaw tours and managed the Boston Light Augmentation Program, under which members of the Coast Guard Auxiliary perform various functions at Boston Light. She has also represented Boston Light in numerous interviews and TV shows. She is the last lighthouse keeper in the United States still employed by the federal government, a legacy that goes back 234 years. In 2018, Sally was the recipient of a Keeper of the Light Award from the American Lighthouse Foundation. I'm going to read an excerpt from the text that was read when she was given the award. Quote, for her sustained dedication and outstanding achievement at historic Boston Light Station, and for perpetuating our great nation's time-honored light-keeping heritage, the American Lighthouse Foundation is proud to present Sally Snowman with a Keeper of the Light Award, unquote. Sally's husband, Jay Thompson, who was a civil engineer, also took part in this interview. So let's listen to part two of my conversation with Sally and Jay now. You know, I was thinking of something I wanted to interject here. Jay, I didn't mean to kind of shortchange you when I, I started out and I introduced you as the, the husband of the, <laughs> the last keeper of Boston Light. So let me ask you, uh, could you tell us a, a little bit more about you, about your background and what led you to the Coast Guard Auxiliary? My background is uh, I graduated and I was able to take in, and get into Northeastern and struggle through, but managed to get my bachelor's degree in civil engineering. And I went and eventually worked for the, the town of Easton, which I'm from, for a year and a half. And then I moved to Plymouth and was with the town of Plymouth in their engineering department for 30 years. And in Plymouth, I, uh, I got my first sailboat. Right? And uh, then I 
wanted something that I could get out to the vineyard. So I bought a, a little 22 foot sailboat and I decided I would need to keep that in Boston Harbor. So I joined the uh, Plymouth Yacht Club and one of the members there had a, a 32 foot wooden schooner that was actually built in Plymouth in the seventies, not by him. Um, mm -hmm. And he would cruise the coast of Maine. And I was fortunate enough to cruise the coast of Maine with him. And uh, his right-hand man was one of his classmates, was Phil Godfrey, who was in the auxiliary. And he talked me into joining the auxiliary. And so I've only been in for 33 or 34 years now. 36. Is that what it's up to? Time flies. It sure does. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I. I had knew just a little bit about your background, so it's good to hear that. I, I'm wondering if you and Dan may ever talk engineering, if you speak uh, the same language. We haven't had a chance, but we we definitely. I, I have a great appreciation for for his understanding in in the work that he's done. Sure, it's like Greek to me, you know. <laughs> I, I appreciate anybody who can do this this stuff. Um, so speaking of uh, physical things, let me just ask you about the physical condition of the island, of Little Brewster Island. I know there's been a lot of concerns over a fault line, a big crack in the, in the island. Uh, so there's that. There's also the issue of rising sea levels and more frequent and worse storms, you know, as we go forward. So, Sally, what do you, what do you think about the future of the island itself at this point? Well, um, it's interesting that you bring that up because with Jay and I, been out there since 1994, we have seen the island getting smaller. Um, and we used to be able to do winter watches about 50% of the time through the winter. Um, well, when I first got hired in 2003, so the winter of 2004, I was out there about 65% of the time. And by the time 2013 came around, we were down to about 45%. And I was on watch with an auxiliarist and we a storm came up and the Coast Guard asked if, they, if we wanted to come off. And when we leave the island in the wintertime, we need to empty out the refrigerator, unplug it, take everything out of the pantry because we, we don't know when we're gonna- It's like back. if you have a summer cabin, you, you yes. know, you just, you just can't shut the door and walk away. It was only supposed to be a nor'easter, what, 40, 45 knots, maybe, you know, six or seven foot seas. So we said, we're, we're okay. Well, it turned out to be a full-blown blizzard. That's a hurricane with snow. And um, it was just so exciting. The, the seas were like eight to 20 feet, and they'd be coming and bashing the back of the house. And Audrey and I would be running just with Audrey, come over here, look at this wave coming. Oh, look at this one over here. And then at night when uh, I was laying in bed with the waves hitting the back of the house, it felt like a vibrator bed in one of those no-tell motel beds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put a quarter in. Yeah. yeah. So I did something really silly. So once the storm, it, we, there wasn't any severe damage, just a whole lot of debris that was thrown onto the island, but there was no damage done. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, we were delayed three days, and we know when we go out, we always bring an, you know extra food with us. And the criteria is we have to look at a 10-day period of time to see what the sea state, um, atmospheric conditions, things like that, to see 
if it's worth going out there. And so it's only after that is done that we plan to go out. So we, for us to go out there and then have a storm coming, but it was going to just be a quick one, like a, a, a blow through. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so once I get back to that, I back home, I sent pictures to the Coast Guard and they go and say, oh, what are you doing out there? And I explained to them why we didn't come off. We just didn't, we'd been out there in Norwegian before. We weren't concerned about that. And they, the typical of New England weather, it, it closed in much quicker than anticipated. So they didn't have time to take and get the place ready and shut it down. The, the opportunity to leave wasn't available. Right. So um, anyway, so that was it. So 2013 was the last winter that I was able to stay out on the island. So that started just our seasonal from um, mid-April until uh, the end of October, typically. And then during the winter, what um, Station Point Alladin in the town of Hull will take me out twice, maybe three times a month during the winter. But last year, we didn't have a bad winter on the mainland. But as far as the sea conditions was concerned, it was a no-go. I went seven weeks without going out to the light. Oh, my God. <laughs> it must have been preparing me for um, not being able to go out once I'm not on the payroll anymore. So yeah. that was a, last winter was a dry run for me. One of the mm. things we used to do when we'd be out there for, for Christmas and New Year's, we'd actually uh, string lights around the lower gallery of the lighthouse and mm -hmm. with the with the clear ones you could get away with one bulb but if you wanted anybody to see it by the time you get down to the blue ones you'd have three or four bulbs clustered together so you'd be able to see it but yeah. that was a lot of fun being out there it was it was never warm out on the gallery trying to wrap those lights around but yeah. a few people over in hull enjoyed seeing it oh yeah well, i'm sure yeah so what we would do is um because it was so laborious to do that, we would do it shortly after Thanksgiving. <laughs> so they'd be up there for uh, a few weeks. And then if they weren't ripped down by the wind, we took them down. We actually had, uh, for a number of years, uh, one of the, <clears throat> the lobstermen representing their group, they would come up and was probably a, a six or eight foot diameter wreath with a pair of cross doors on it and that would get hauled up and, and tied up on the lighthouse so it was it was fun being festive yeah yeah well i put lights up on portsmouth harbor light a number of times and before the christmas season i know how cold and windy you can get there to be out on an island uh, even more so um, but uh um going back to the uh the crack on the island how much of a concern is that there's different points of view about that before I was even on the payroll in 2000, a friend of mine who had a geology background, we went around the island and took pictures and took measurements and put a spiral book together and gave it to the Coast Guard for like before and afters. Mm -hmm. And the crack that, um, that you're referring to is between the tower and the fog signal building. And yeah. so if you're up at the tower and you look down between those two buildings and look to the right and look to the left, you'll see that there's the stones out to the 
northeast, you can see the running crack. And if you look down to the right at the tower, you can see this clever, cleaver, um, um, Jay, what do you call that? You know, a cut piece in. Yeah. Um, what what they did, and I think it was 2005, actually, I think they started in 94, uh, for erosion control in that area, they put gabions, which are uh, wire mesh with stones. And, um, you know, they did their job, but it's one of those things you can't just put them there and walk away. You've yeah. got to take and come back and maintain it. And, you know, it just has been one of those things that has been put off because of lack of abilities to do it. So, uh, so that crack that is when you're on a boat and you know where to look, you can actually see the crevice going in there. And um, so there's been one official scientific research saying, yes, there's the, there's the uh, possibility of, the, um, of that cracking and having the fog signal building fall into the sea. If mm -hmm. that happened, there's nearly a, you know, two feet between the two buildings. And so with a, uh, the way the tower is situated, that could be in danger too. So that there's one report saying, yes, this is a reality. And there's another report that says, no, it's been this way for 3,000 years or whatever. And, um, you know, we don't have to worry about that. So we can leave it at, at that. We we don't know, <laughs> in other words. And we don't know, you know, these properties are all, are all endangered by their nature anyway. Right. An interesting point is the uh, NOAA came out and they actually put it temporary tide gauge at the end of the pier mm -hmm. a storm disturbed it and we went to take and see if they could put it back because with having tours it was great because it it had a uh, a satellite reception and it would send the ping information back up to the satellites and essentially what it determined is since 1929 when the last time they did some serious leveling in the Boston area, that the average tide has has come up about three quarters of a foot. Wow, that, that's something that NOAA can state in in their determination. That's pretty significant. So the Gabians have fallen down. They brought them out. They did work. We know they did work in '94 or in yep. that ballpark. They did it in 2005, and then they came back again. Um, before to before our 300th anniversary, the people that came back for that second time, I could tell by the way they were working it, they didn't have the finesse that the previous company had for it. And they're so they've all collapsed. So they look like dead soldiers, these uh, wire things right. with rocks sitting there. And so right where that crevice is, it's not, it's not protected. It's, it's kind of like working in the beach sand and trying to build a castle. If, if you don't have enough side slope, if you build it too steeply, it's not going to stay. And they just, you know, it needed more gabions and, and a gentler slope to be able to stay. So, Sally, uh, it's interesting when you were talking again about, you know, being 10 years old and, and visiting the lighthouse and kind of uh, dreaming, you know, that maybe you'd be a lighthouse keeper someday. Uh, 
I think you sent that that wish into the universe and uh, it came back to you. It got answered. You know, how many people can say that? But maybe that's the beginning for you. I know you have have a strong spiritual you've had a strong spiritual life in, in many ways, but and you have a strong spiritual connection to Boston Light for sure. There's no doubt about that. So do you want to comment on that? I know this is something that's very important to you. Uh, yes, because when I stepped onto the island, it spoke to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. I All I knew is that, as I say now, it, it's a first love. There was something about the energy. And I, and I didn't know what I was thinking when you're thinking of it. There was just this feeling. And... Um, and it was like feeling I've been here before. I'm, it's like I've come home without any cognizance of what that meant. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get to close that loop until our wedding day. When we went out there and we, we tied the boat up at the end of the pier, got off the boat, started walking down the pier. And it was like, okay, yes, this is, there's something like I've been here before. Uh, and the, when we got married, there was a restoration project going on so that there was a blue top over the cistern building. There were stacks of shingles all over the place. Uh, and so it's really fun to look at the, um, the the wedding pictures to see that. And thinking that when we applied for the insurance policy that we needed to have. Jay, why don't you tell me about that? $1 million insurance policy for 24 hours. Holy cow. And we were only on the island for one hour. (laughs) And the the boats that came out, we weren't on patrol. There were three auxiliary boats. We had maybe 15, 16 people. And then I had a brother-in-law that was in the Coast Guard. My my sister had been in the Coast Guard. And then most of us on the island were auxiliarists and we still had to get the insurance policy. So it was very interesting. But the thing is there was no other cost to the wedding. <laughs> so that that was the big cost. Yeah. And um so then um when we um oh this is the story i love to tell too uh, jay had a friend that he got to know when he was an auxiliarist and uh, uh we became really really good friends and the name of their sailboat was the true love so what we did is we sailed the boat up from plymouth up to weymouth we and- we not being me it was sally pauline and another auxiliarist the three of them brought the boat up from Plymouth to Weymouth so it would be there for our wedding day. Yeah, so it was mm-hmm. it was the girls sailed up from Plymouth. And then um the next day we Jay and I was out were on the sailboat and the others were on two other boats and um anchored. And then my dad's boat was the smallest one. So he was the one that did the shuttling back and forth. When we were on the island, it was such a beautiful, gorgeous day. And again, we go back to that energy piece. We didn't get to climb the tower, but the other guests did. But our time came once we were married. uh, There was no impropriety because at that time it was just a stag, a a male billet. So when Jay and I went out there, there was no impropriety because we were now married and together. And mm-hmm. that opened the door for um, for for other women, you know, a few years 
to come. And when we had our assistant keepers out there, uh, half of them were male and half a female. That's a question I get asked is out of the 80 people that were there, what was the ratio? And it was just about 50-50, which was kind of cool. And so once we got on, started doing watches out of Boston Light, this is where we got our, our idea that we were going to search everything we could find about Boston Light. Five years of research. And then our friends were saying we should sandwich that between two covers for which we did. Having no idea that this was all going to be leading up to the, um, the Boston Light Augmentation Program, 9-11, and then it being a civilian position, just how that whole thing unfolded. Yeah. Well, once I became the keeper and I was spending great amount of time out there, I wouldn't you if you could? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would. I'll just interject that you were nice enough to let me spend a night there on the couch in the keeper's house a few years ago. And it was one of the greatest lighthouse experiences I've had. So I know how magic that place is. So this is where I got into the, the energy. And mm -hmm. when Jay and I did our first watch after our wedding, a few weeks later, we we're going up the 75, 76 spiral stairs, the ladder into the gear room, the ladder into the lantern room, and then we went outside onto the gallery. And I'm not really big about, about um, heights, but when I got up there, I remember saying to Jay, I feel like I've done this a thousand times. And during Jay's and our research, we found out that after the Revolutionary War, when the keeper that was out there, his name was Knox, he had a wife and her name was Content. And um, I don't know if you, what your sense is about reincarnation, but that was the only rational understanding that I could have, that mm -hmm. I am a foundation of her and that's why it felt like that I had come home when I was 10 years old I had already had a previous experience back in 1783 as odd as that should be but just moving around the island and feeling connected and um our first watch that we did one of the things that I connected with was the Native American energy and if you go back into our history of king philip's war that the christianized natives were put on islands with no provisions they were just put out there and my impression from what i was reading in my history was that it was in the inner harbor their island was the one that gets all the credit for where they were put but they're historically they were Indians out on Great Brewster, which Little Brewster is dearly attached at least twice a day. Yep. Uh, and, and so um, in uh, bygone days, Little Brewster Island was also referred to as the head of Great Brewster Island. And yep. so with the rising tides that we've had, there is a... a, a it does get exposed at low tide, but back in the 1700s, it was a lot easier to do that transition back and forth. So what I was sensing, but not only with the Native Americans, but also all the all the people that came across from Europe 
and perished uh, on the graves, rocks and um, the ledges and the boosters and how they are can get stuck between mm-hmm. the two worlds. And through my spiritual Training. Trainings, yes. Um, I have a second doctorate. Uh, I have a PhD in metaphysical sciences. And one of the things, the trainings that I went through was to help those who are stuck that have died, but haven't passed over to the other side. And that's where we knew we sometimes called them ghosts or what have you, that you see something out of the corner of your eye or hear rattling or something, you actually see an image. Well, these are stuck entities. So what I started doing just in a natural way before I even had my doctorate, I got the graduate in 2015, but I was already doing this intuitively. And so through the years, uh, the clarity, the uh, how the island feels in the outer harbor through freeing all these stuck souls. It's a, a much more, it's like benevolent energy there now. Mm-hmm. Some of the listeners might enjoy uh, learning what your second master's was in. For this metaphysical training that I did, I had to do a uh, bachelor's, a master's, and the doctorate. Mm-hmm. So I have two bachelors, two, two, two of everything. So what was the significance of, of my master's? It was in Egyptology. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, Some of the listeners have, might just enjoy that. Okay. Yeah. Specialties is Egyptian um, with the mythology yeah egyptian mythology and i've been to egypt and mm-hmm. done really nifty things like gone to the sphinx you know with the paws yeah. and um it was a small group about 16 of us and uh we meditated down there and it was the park or that area had an open jet and we was when I was done with my meditation I opened my eyes up and there must have been like a thousand people looking at us down at the Sphinx. Wow. <laughs> Other thing that we got to do is in the Great Pyramid there's a yeah. low and they don't let the general public do that but we could and it's a very tiny space. I you had to crunch down and you're going downhill mm-hmm. and um, just to be there and, and do meditation there. And I got to lay in the, uh, um, sarcophagus. Yeah, the sarcophagus. I mean, wow. <laughs> energies that I've had. Yeah. And, and then I went with another spiritual trip to Tunisia um, and lived with nomads in the desert for uh, 10 days, riding a camel every day. Oh, that was so cool. And then um, I've been down to um, Peru, to Lake Titicaca, and actually got to um, stay overnight on um, Sun Island. So all these connections that I have. And the other thing that I love is toning, chanting in, ta- in, a, in uh, an acoustic environment. Mm-hmm. And there's people that travel the world to go to caves and sites and things like that, specifically to do their toning. Mm-hmm. Boston Light, 
that's what it is toning all the time and I think so privileged I don't have to go anywhere just go into the tower and start toning or drumming or rattling uh-huh. I just thought of something I think you'd really love uh I did a podcast episode about it quite a while ago but um there's a lighthouse in London and England you don't expect there's going to be a lighthouse there because it's near the Thames but it was never an aid to navigation. It was built for experiments. Michael Faraday, the famous electrician, did experiments there, among others. So anyway, um, it's you know just referred to as a Trinity House lighthouse there. This guy named Jem Finer, who used to be in the rock band The Pogues, and Shane McGowan, the singer for The Pogues, just died yesterday, just coincidentally. But anyway, he created this musical installation in this lighthouse that uses ancient Tibetan singing bowls. I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, he created a piece of music that's supposed to play for a thousand years before it repeats itself. It's he designed like a computer program to play this music with these singing bowls, but they can also do live demonstrations. There's a set of singing bowls in there. I was there by myself. They gave me the key to the lighthouse when I was there last year. I went in and sat up in the lantern room by myself and listened to this music. It was it was one of the most incredible experiences. I think you'd really appreciate that. Jay, you're holding a what I think is a speaker there. What's what's this all about? Oh, that's a bowl. I couldn't make it out. I, I was seeing it at a cross section. I didn't make it in anywhere near that. Yeah. So you have a you have a, a singing bowl. A few. We have a number of them. Yes. Okay. So yeah. I don't know if you know about this this installation I'm talking about, Sally, but it's something you'd. I have not heard it, but we did do um, a spiritual journey to, um, Jay went with me on this one, and um, there's a ley line that cross over Serpentine, the, um, the southwest and end Mary, of England. And we uh-huh. did, we just um, did ceremony for the whole two weeks of that on, you know, a bus trip, just following that line up to Avery. So uh, we we have had experiences like that in in this very room that yep. we're in. Um, I have a private practice. It's called the the Harmonic Sanctuary of Enlightenment, and I'm going to um, t- turn the the uh, screen okay, for for you to see what we have. Yeah, and people listening won't see this, but you've got. Uh, these uh, different kinds of drums and percussion things around the room. Wow. It's like a, a museum of spiritual instruments or whatever you, I don't know how you refer to them, but yeah. Yeah. And then um, one of our newest um, um, add on is um, a go- you have a gong there. I see that. Um, yeah. Wow. That's our newest. Yeah, I knew you were into the the drumming and stuff, not, but I, I guess I didn't quite realize the extent. <laughs> but that's <laughs> that's great. Um, but listening to all this, you know, um, you've really had a quite a quite a life. <laughs> Being keeper of Boston Life for twenty years is just one, you know, one chapter in that life. So you've got to write that book, and I and it may. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about who's going to play you in the Netflix series about your life. <laughs> you should start. And I have one little other um, tidbit to share with you. Um, uh, not only do I do the, the sound healing piece, but I'm a yoga teacher. And it, this is one of the other things that I have done. I finished the training in 2017. 
uh, and there's a, many flavors of Kundalini yoga, of yoga, of yoga. And I chose Kundalini yoga because when I was surfing the net to see what the different flavors were, because I've been doing yoga for years, but not any particular flavor. And for Kundalini yoga, it was described as that we are all beacons of light. We are all lighthouses. And that was it. Sign me up. <laughs> A lot of chanting and toning involved. Well, too. And that yeah. was the other thing because I wanted to get into the, into the, the, the chanting in the meditation. Yeah. You've probably done a lot of uh, chanting and meditating and all, all kinds of things at Boston Light. What a perfect place. Yes. Yeah. In mm -hmm. fact, um, I, I think maybe five times um, got permission from the Park Service at the end of the season when the uh, enrollment on the boats um, mm -hmm. was lower, that um, in Sundays were typically the lower that we would have um, a Sunday and I, not me as the keeper, I had helpers help me with this, to have a sacred journey to Boston Light. So they took care of all the arrangements, getting the ferry boat, uh, the charge for, the, for this event, it was only to pay for the transportation. the transportation and I had nothing to do with that. And so they would come on the island and we'd have typically around 30 and we'd mm -hmm. be doing the toning in the um, drumming in the in drumming in the tower. And one of the things that I do, I also studied Native American traditions. And um, then there's the very, very old labyrinths. So I laid that out with superimposed with 36 rocks for the um, medicine, wheel. medicine wheel and then we'd be walking in and out of that and we made it so it was almost the full width of the island going up toward the tower and so everybody would just get into their own little space in time and then they'd go back on the boat at it, it happened all the time that it was just about sunset so mm -hmm. they were heading back to the mainland and um, it was so wonderful that the Park Service allowed that to happen. And because this was Native American, that was the, the key that said, yeah, sure. And I said, if any of the rangers want to come, just let us know when we will um, you know, arrange transportation. But they all worked, <laughs> so they couldn't come. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, this is another topic about the stones, the etchings in the stones, mm -hmm. the tradition in lighthouses. And the question I get asked all the time is, Sally, where are your initials? Or where are you going to put your initials? And it's like, I don't have to leave my initials anywhere. I have uh, 29 years of Sally energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's that is that's there forever. Absolutely. Yeah. Your your presence is is going to be there for forever and forever and ever and ever. I was thinking back to when you're talking about you felt the possibly the reincarnation of the wife of the keeper there, Keeper Knox. Uh, Content was her first name. What a what a great yeah. name! But you also, uh, Jay, didn't you do some research? That there's actually I'm, a relation I'm, to mm -hmm. doing geology re genealogy research. 
there's two of the keepers out at Boston Light that are distant relatives of Sally, one being Keeper Tower and mm-hmm. the other Keeper Bates. Mm-hmm. And then we told you the the other night that uh, Sally had one of her, the snowman aunts, was married to the Keeper of Pumpkin Island Light on the uh, western end of Egamogan Reach. And yeah. uh, his name was Snow. Where, what is the uh, the origin of the, the name Snowman? Where, where does that? The furthest back is, I think, about 1630. There was this Christian snowman came over from, from England and then shortly thereafter headed up toward Maine. Um, so I don't know. But the, the other thing is, is there was a, an old sailing vessel style that was actually called a snow. Mm-hmm. Was the name of the sailing vessel. So, right. whether that had any part to do with it or yeah. not, I don't know. Somebody who was a skipper of uh, a, one of those vessels, the snow might have been called a yeah. snowman, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there are there are a number of Sally's ancestors, and going as short as her dad had a hundred ton uh, Coast Guard license. So there were a number of the the family going back for generations that were involved in sailing in the sea. I once had a captain's license, but when I got the job, I couldn't get my end away time. So that lapsed. But I would have been the other, the last snowman uh, with a captain's license forever. Wow. Interesting. Um, Sally, let me ask you, we're speaking on November 30th. A month from now, or a little over a month from now, at the end of the year, you will be retired from your job at Boston Light. Uh, what are you going to do after you're retired? Hopefully, she'll take some time to decompress. Yeah, I hope so. And I'm, I'm so busy working at tying up loose ends, and I had no idea how many loose ends there are. And um, we're at the end of November and go, oh my goodness gracious, I only have 31 more days to do the what I ever have to do. Um, so I really haven't seriously thought about that yet. However, um, I'm always going to be be busy. Yeah. I can do all my sanctuary of enlightenment. Um, yeah. Our neighbor Dave Walla has said she can come out and clean his first lens anytime she wants. <laughs> For people listening, some people know what that means, but you're, of course, referring to Dave being the owner of Graves Lighthouse. That's uh, how, how far apart are they? Is it three miles apart from each other? It's only two? It's two miles. But uh, they're sort of uh, siblings in the in outer Boston Harbor, Graves Light being the much younger sibling, although people look at it and I think it's more ancient. But anyway, yeah. I just was uh, corresponding with Dave today. Yeah, I think you're one of those people. You're, you'll always be busy. I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I tend to do too many things at once. And when I complain about it to my wife, Charlotte, she says, well, that's what you do. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to change. So I understand that. I'm going to ask you both a final question. OK, this one's for bonus points. All right. And <laughs> Sally, I, I think I asked you this question when you were on the podcast before. But you can, you know, you might give the same answer, you might give a different answer, whatever, whatever comes into your head. But uh, what has been your and Jay, I want to ask you too a different version of this question. In fact, why don't I start with you, Jay? Um, (laughs) What has been your favorite thing about your association with Boston Light over the years? 
I think just just being out on the on the island is is just a, some such a privilege. I mean, you know, from your one night out there, but can you imagine multiplying that by the number of times? It's just fascinating, and and you can tell from our book that we're both into history, and it's pretty hard not to be into history when you're out on that island. Absolutely. It is an absolutely magic place. I've been out there many times during the day, only that one night, but I've certainly experienced it enough to understand what an absolutely amazing, special place it is. So Sally, what has been your favorite thing about uh, your years of association with Boston Light? It is magical. I just love being out there with the ocean around me, all around me. And it just listening, closing my eyes and hearing what's happening all around, the the wind whipping around the tower or what have you. And it's all nature stuff that um, that's pulling at my heartstrings right now. The sun rises in the sundowns and I drum the sundown. And so for some of the auxiliaries, they just that's you know, like, whoa, what's she doing? And they either go to another part of the island or they go in the house. And others will come out and because they have other drums and rattles and they can um, join in with me if they want. But that's, that's the way of waking up in the morning and greeting the sun and then bringing closure at night. And it's just not that way in Weymouth, Massachusetts. I look over my bedroom window and I can see the sunset behind the trees, but you can't see it actually going down. Where Boston, eight miles away, is just dropping behind the city. And and then the sun rises, it's coming right over the Atlantic Ocean with no obstruction whatsoever. I think in our everyday lives, a lot of us have lost a lot of that connection to to nature. You know, I mean, people working in offices and, and so forth. It's not the same as being on an island, obviously. And, you know, I think through the years when there were lighthouse keepers living at these places, yeah, it was a hard job. It was a dangerous job. It didn't pay very well, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for the most part, they also loved it. And I think that was the the main thing that they loved about it was just that connection to the the planet and the ocean and the sky and, and everything else. Um, I, I have a, a, another story mm-hmm. um, because I, I love nature and the, the, the gulls would fly over me when I'm, when I come to the Island, it's really kind of cool. And um, when I'm leaving the Island and there was, we were doing um, uh, a, a change of watch. So I was leaving the Island and two people were coming on board and so I'm coming down the dock with all my gear and the birds are flying over me and they're going, car, car, car. So I'm going, car, car, car. <laughs> and the exilist comes over to me. And she said, you definitely have to get off of this island. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, I don't even realize what I'm doing. I just get into that whole thing. And it's just so cool when I come to the island to have the seagull, the, the gulls flying yeah. around. Well, I think you start to feel that there's no line between you and the, the universe, right? It's all it's all one. One of the enjoyable things I had the privilege to do was where uh, Charles Morgan came up to visit Boston when they... The whaling ship. The whaling ship, yeah. The whaling ship. 
and she was under sail coming in Nantasket Roads. And it was just amazing to see. Of course, I didn't have a camera with me, but um, and she sailed through the Narrows. It was definitely a memorable sight. I would think so. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And you must have so many memorable sights over the years. And those all have to be in the book. So I'm looking <laughs> looking forward to that. You know, um, Sally and Jay, we could we could talk for hours. We have yeah. kind of talked for hours, especially if you take into account last night and tonight. Uh, but I love hearing it all. Uh, and we'll we'll do it again. We'll maybe we can revisit sometime down the road and see how you are enjoying your retirement. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone in the podcast talking about what it's like to be retired. Maybe looking back some more. But thank you so much for spending this time with me, Sally and Jay. And again, uh, again, I don't want to keep apologizing, but sorry about what happened last night. But thank you for being so understanding and for doing a, a second take on this. It was great. The part that didn't get re uh, recorded last night was great, but this was just as great, if not better. So, so thank you so much. And again, I share your love of Boston Light. I completely understand it. Uh, and I wish you all the best in your retirement, Sally. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks at the retirement party. I don't think they're calling it a party. Is it a gathering? Is that the official name? A gathering. gathering. It's a yeah. small gathering. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, so again, thank you so much, Sally and Jay, and good luck with everything. Take care. Thank you. There have been no tours of Boston Light for several years, but there is a narrated cruise you can take from Boston that goes near Boston Light and Graves Light. Go to bostonharborislands.org to learn more. As you can tell from the interview, Sally is a very interesting person who's had an amazing journey in her life. Besides being a lighthouse keeper, she's done many important things to help people educationally and spiritually. But I know Boston Light is very close to her heart. Check out uslhs.org to learn about preservation grants, the research catalog, and all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. Remember that donations and memberships help to support this podcast. If you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Do you have a quote for the holiday season, Cindy? Yes, I do. The humorous Dave Barry once wrote, quote, Once again, we come to the holiday season, a deeply religious time that each of us observes in his own way by going to the mall of his choice, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> well, all joking aside, we wish the very best to everyone for Hanukkah, Christmas, or whatever you celebrate. Yes, we do. With that, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and... Keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.